You'll need a Bible this morning. John chapter 9, we're going to pick up where we left off a few weeks ago. Last week we took a a one-Sunday break from the Gospel of John, but we're back in it this morning. There's notes in your bulletin. You can follow along with what we're going to talk about. This morning we're going to look at most of John 9, almost the whole chapter. Next week we're going to come back to John 9 and look at verse 35 down to verse 41. So this morning we're going to look at John 9, 1, all the way to 34. I want to begin with John 20. We've talked about John 20 a lot in this series, and I just want to remind you of sort of the theme verse or the thematic statement for the Gospel of John. It says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John tells us, once you get to the end of the book and you're sort of looking backwards, he tells us that he's been very selective in the signs that he's recorded. He says, there were a lot of things I could have written. I didn't write everything, but the ones that I've written, these signs I wrote in this book, I'm telling you these stories so that you can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you have life. When you read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are lots of signs, lots of miracle stories. Some of them are long and extended. Some of them are just very, very brief, but there are a lot of them. When you read through the Gospel of John, there are only seven I just want you to keep that in mind. When John says, these signs have been written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, there's only seven. Jesus turning water to wine, chapter 2. Jesus heals the son of a noble man in chapter 4. He heals a lame man by a pool in chapter 5. He feeds the 5,000, chapter 6. He walks on water, chapter 7. Only the disciples saw that one. The crowds were not there for that sign. Chapter 8, healing of this man who was born blind, and then chapter 11, when we get to chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus. These signs have been written that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you would have life. Now, there's a couple of details I want you to notice before we read most of John chapter 9. Our story starts with a phrase, and the phrase that our story begins with is, uh, as he passed by. As he passed by. On first glance, you read that and you think, okay, we're picking up immediately where we left off in John 8. He was doing something and then he passed by. Scholars sort of argue and debate about what this phrase means. And really, it's not solid enough. It's not tight enough to give you a a real chronology of events. The setting is a little bit unknown. Some people look at this phrase and they say, Jesus... When he, he passes by, this is something that happened immediately after chapter 8. That's a little bit strange because if you remember the end of John 8, they picked up rocks to throw at Jesus, to kill Jesus. It seems a little bit odd that immediately he's just passing by and they've forgotten about the rocks and all of that. So that's probably not what happened. Some scholars look at this phrase and they say it's actually a flashback. It's a flashback to something that happened in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles, an interaction Jesus had. That's one possibility. I agree with the group that says this is probably a few months later. Jesus escaped this attempt on his life. They go their separate ways for a little while. Everyone calms down just a little bit. And then Jesus, back in Jerusalem at some point, 
possibly, probably a few months later, is going to heal this man, and he's going to send him to the pool of Siloam. Two details I want to mention in this story that are unique, and I'm going to mention them, and then I'm going to just sort of maybe tamper expectations a little bit, okay? This is one of only a few miracles where Jesus used spit to heal someone. Jesus healed people in a lot of different ways. Sometimes he spoke, and he healed them. Sometimes he told people, you just need to go. The miracle's already been done. Sometimes he touched people, especially lepers. He, he tended to touch them. No one else would have touched them. Jesus touched them. And a few times he uses spit. So this is like middle school boy heaven, a story about Jesus spitting in the mud and smearing it on somebody's face. And some people look at this little detail and they say, man, there is something to it. Jesus didn't always do this. When he did it, there must be something meaningful. There must be something significant. And I'll be honest with you, there's some great theories. I'm not going to share any of them with you, but there's some great theories about why did he spit in the mud and wipe the mud on his face. All I'm going to say to you is this. Sometimes a detail in a story is just a detail. Sometimes. Sometimes there's theological significance to the things that the gospel writers or the biblical authors include. Sometimes it's just the detail that an eyewitness would include when telling the story. And sometimes you may need to dig a little bit and think about what's the theological significance of why Jesus is smearing mud that he made with his own spit on this man's face. And sometimes it's just a detail to the story. He just chose to do it this way. And we need to be careful sometimes about over-spiritualizing things that may just be part of the story. I think that's the case with the mud. I also think that's the case with the pool of Siloam. Jesus sent the man to the pool of Siloam, which means, John interprets it for us, it means sent. And this is kind of cool. If you travel to the Holy Lands today and you go to Jerusalem, you can go to the Pool of Siloam. It looks something like this. It's an interesting piece of uh, biblical archaeology and history because for a lot, a lot of years, biblical scholars thought one location was the Pool of Siloam. They did some digging and they found some things and some inscriptions and they ended up saying, no, we think we've had it wrong all these years. So if you go to the Holy Lands, just know you go to some place and they say, this is the spot. Let them dig around a little longer. They might change their mind and say, no, this is the spot. And this is the spot that they think it is now. If, if you go down here to the sort of the right of the picture, there's some water down at the bottom. And it looked different in Jesus' day, but this is the spot that Jesus sent the man. And some people say he sent them to this pool. He sent the man with the mud on his face that he had made with his spit to this pool for a reason because the pool means sent. And if you listen to what Jesus has been arguing with the Jewish leaders about, he's been telling them over and over, I am sent by the Father. And so some scholars say, look, Jesus is trying to hammer home a point. He's trying to say to everyone who sees the miracle, I really have been sent by the Father. Can I tell you what I think? I think it was the closest place where the guy could go wash the mud off his face. I, I think that's it. We don't know exactly where it happened. And I think Jesus knew the city, and he said, hey, Siloam's right down the road. Go to the pool of Siloam, wipe the stuff off your face, and that's exactly what the man does. If you want to read into these details, you're welcome to do so. I don't think any of the details sort of drive home the main idea of the story, the big idea of the story, which is this. Jesus is the light of the world who gives sight to the blind. 
And when you look at that big idea, he's the light of the world, he gives sight to the blind, you mean, you may find yourself sort of saying, you mean blind people will see again someday. That's what happens in this story. I'll just ruin it for you. The blind guy gets to see. And in the end, those who are blind on this earth are going to see. But we're not just talking about physical blindness, although we are talking about physical blindness. We're also talking about spiritual blindness. And Jesus, the light of the world, came so that those of us who are spiritually blind could see. This goes all the way back to the very beginning of John 1. Do you remember when we looked at John 1 and I said, everything that you're going to learn in the Gospel of John, you can boil it back down to John 1, 1 to 18. It says the true light was coming into the world and the darkness could not overcome that light. That's what we're talking about here. Jesus, the light of the world, opening the eyes of spiritually blind people like you and like me. So we're going to read the story, almost all of the story. We're going to begin in John 9, verse 1. Scripture says this, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work for the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light and the ground of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went, and he washed, and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, It's he. Others said, No, but he's like him. He kept saying, I'm the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day. When Jesus made mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. The Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess 
Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? They reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. That's the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we stop. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the stories of Jesus. We come to the end of the year and we think about Christmas and we think about Jesus' birth. And Lord, as we study through the gospel of John, we want to be mindful That there is a story beyond Bethlehem. There's a story beyond the wise men and the shepherds and the angels. That Jesus taught. He performed signs. He laid down his life for ours. And Lord, as we think about the story of Jesus this Christmas season, we pray that it would impact the way we celebrate Christmas, the way that we think about the holidays. And Lord, this morning, very specifically, we just ask that you would give us eyes to see the truth. And we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want you to see three truths. Three simple truths about the light of the world from John 9. The first truth is this. Jesus does not give sight to the blind based on spiritual or moral performance. He does not give sight to the blind based on your spiritual or your moral performance. Verse 2, John 9. The disciples asked him, as they're passing by and they see a man who has been blind from birth, the disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Their assumption is that his blindness was directly tied to a specific sin. And in their mind, there were only two options. Option one, this man sinned, which is strange because he's been born blind, right? He has never seen. And so what they're assuming here is God must have looked into the future and known that he was going to steal the bubble gum from the 7-Eleven or whatever, And because God knew he was going to commit this sin, he went ahead and preemptively punished the man with blindness. That was one possibility in their minds. 
The other possibility is that it was his parents' fault. They did something wrong. They, they crossed the wrong person. They, they didn't keep the law just right. Maybe they broke the Sabbath and they had no disregard for the Lord's commands. And God's punishment, his judgment on this couple was carried out on their son. And so he was born blind. The assumption by the disciples is somebody fouled up and that's why this man can't see and has never been able to see. I just want you to understand, the Pharisees completely agree with that assessment. They completely agree with the idea that this man has done something or someone has done something, and that's why he's born blind. If you look at John 9, and you look down at verse 34, they answer him, the the Pharisees, the Jews answer him, you were born in utter sin. It's specific enough for them to say sin is the cause of this, a specific sin. It's broad enough for them to agree with the disciples and say, maybe it was yours, maybe it was your parents, but somebody sinned, and that's why you have this problem in your life. This is legalism. Just very simply, it's legalism. It's not complicated. It's the idea that if you do something good, God will do something good for you. And if you do something bad, God will slap you around one way or the other. You can hear this in 10,000 churches across the United States. You can hear this from every major world religion that you want to listen to the, the guru or the imam or the, the whatever. I mean, they'll, they'll all tell you the same basic thing. If you do good, if you be nice, if you keep the rules, God will bless you. If you do bad, if you're not nice, and if you don't keep the rules, God will not bless you. That's legalism. It's all on you. And the disciples walk into this assumption. That's their their operating system. That's what they're thinking out of, is a, a legalistic mindset. And the Pharisees completely agree. Can I just tell you, this is default for human beings. It's default. This is just how we sort of show up. We just sort of show up. And you know we all show up this way because our churches, over time, they just tend to drift this way if we're not careful to this do good and everything will go okay, mess up, and it's, it's not going to be right. It's all on you. You hear it in Islam. You hear it in Buddhism. You hear it in Hinduism. You hear it from the disciples. You hear it from the Pharisees. It's this assumption that if you do the right thing, God is obligated to bless you. But if you don't, He's going to get you. And Jesus sort of walks into that legalistic mindset, and it's from his enemies and his best friends. And he just rejects all of it. Look what Jesus says in verse 3, John 9, verse 3. Jesus answered them, It was not that this man sinned. It's not that he sinned that he was born blind. Now, Jesus believed the man was a sinner. His point is, This blindness has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with his parents. It's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. There is a purpose in it. There is a reason in it. And it's that God is going to take this occasion of suffering and use it to put his works on display. Now you hear that and I hear that. We hear that in 2019 in Odessa, Texas, and many of you say, "Okay, that really doesn't answer all my questions about why bad things happen to people." 
I mean, I'm, I'm still trying to wrestle with why the guy was blind. I know Jesus is going to use it for some good in the end, but just the broader philosophical question, why do bad things happen to all of us, this really doesn't untie that knot for me. Guess what? The Bible was not written to untie that knot. I know that we come to the Bible many times and we feel like God owes us an answer about every question that we may have. But there's some questions the Bible just sort of doesn't answer. Jesus says, look, it's not based on this guy's goodness or badness. It's not based on his parents' goodness or badness. But God's mighty power, his mighty works are going to display, be displayed through this situation. And you just need to have faith. That's what the Bible is written to do. It's to say to you, this is who God is, the holy creator. This is who you are, a sinful creature. And the only way that you, the sinful creature, can have a relationship with the holy creator is by faith. You're going to have to believe his promises. You're going to have to trust in what he's done. All your questions are not going to be answered. You're not going to be able to check off all the philosophical objections that you have to sin and suffering and evil and blindness and disability and lameness and leprosy and all the rest of it. You're not going to be able to answer all those questions. What you are called to do is be a person, a man, a woman, a boy, a girl, a faith. Trust God. This is who he is and this is who you are. You need to have faith. Negatively, you and I cannot go through life and every time something bad happens, say, Oh, I think God is getting even with me. Our air conditioner went out at home this year. When your air conditioner goes out at home, you feel like the world's ending, especially when it's August in in Odessa. And your air conditioner goes out and you think, what did I do to deserve? That's just where your mind, what what happened? Brooke, did you sin this week? What happened? Emma, who did it? Somebody did something wrong. and You can't go through life like that. And positively, you can't go through life sort of checking all the boxes saying, I've got to be good enough for God to love me. All right, there's two ways to be a legalist. It's to face every hardship and and blame it on some specific sin, or it's to try to earn your way with God, and Jesus rejects all of it, and he says, that's really not what this is about. It's not that he sinned or his parents sinned. It's that the works of God would be on display. In this story, the disciples and the blind man, they make some progress. They start to put some of the pieces of the puzzle together. They start to figure some things out, and they get a little bit closer to the truth. The Pharisees make no progress. They are completely stuck in their legalism. And I just got to tell you, that's a miserable place to be stuck. You want to talk about a miserable terrible way to go through life. It's stuck in a legalistic mindset, and that's exactly where they are. You chuckled as I read the story, right? They keep calling people in. How did this happen? Who did this? What's the explanation? And did you notice that the detail about the Sabbath doesn't even get mentioned in the story until the Pharisees show up? It's almost like that's not even worth mentioning until the Pharisees get there. And if you look at John 9, verse 13, they brought the Pharisees, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been born blind. And then it's like John says, oh yeah, I I need to 
now that those guys are here, I need to mention one more detail. It was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. I forgot to mention that. But now that these legalistic guys walked into the story, you really need to understand it happened on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are convinced that Jesus has broken the Sabbath. In their little world, you are not allowed to do any plowing on the Sabbath. You are not allowed to knead dough on the Sabbath. You are not allowed to water your plants on the Sabbath. And when Jesus talks a loogie in the dirt and makes it into mud, I mean, we laugh at that. But what they said is, that's work. Right? You're watering the ground. You're plowing the field. You're kneading the dough. You've worked. And you healed this man on the Sabbath. In Jesus, we've seen this in the Gospel of John so many times. You've heard me talk about it. If you were in a life or death situation, you could heal someone on the Sabbath. If they were going to make it to the next day, you let them make it to the next day. And this guy hasn't seen anything his entire life. He can make it one more day. And in their minds, for Jesus to heal on the Sabbath day is a violation of the Sabbath command. He's made the mud. He healed on the Sabbath. Jesus is guilty. Just see the sadness in this for the Pharisees. The light of the world is right there. Right there. And all they can do is argue about spitting in the dirt and healing on the Sabbath. That's what legalism reduces your life to. Jesus, the light of the world, right there. And all you care about is dirt and mud and a calendar. So, number one, Jesus does not give sight to the blind based on spiritual or moral performance. Secondly, Jesus gives sight to the blind, but this does not eliminate trials and tribulations of this life. It does not eliminate the trials and the tribulations of this life. You see this truth in this story. I want you to think for a moment just about all the things this man missed in life because he was born blind. He'd never seen anything. And I think one of the ways you can begin to appreciate that is to stop and think about your own life, about some of the greatest memories that you have. And my guess is that some of your greatest memories are like mine. They're things that you saw. You were present to experience something and you got to see it with your eyes. Many of your memories are going to be like that. I'll give you just a few examples of uh, memories I have. When we lived in Oklahoma, we got to go watch a lot of Kansas games, not in Kansas, but in Stillwater or in Norman. And especially in Stillwater, we had a lot of people at our church that had season tickets to Oklahoma State football and basketball. And they would give us, many times, they were kind enough to give us their season tickets. And that's about where we sat, right there at midcourt, bottom of the, the top level. Great seats. And we'd go watch these Kansas games. And me and my youth pastor were Kansas fans. We have our Jayhawk shirts on sitting there in the middle of all the season ticket holders. And one year, we got to, to watch a game. And I'll never forget seeing it. We sat in just that exact spot, and we watched a triple overtime win for the Jayhawks. And a kid named Nadir Tharp, who was not a very good player for Kansas, just 
at the end of the game in overtime, he just put them on his back, and he shot, and he shot, and they all went in. And I just remember seeing it. And then after the game, we hung around, and we met Coach Bill Self. And we talked with him, and we visited with him. And I look back on those pictures, and I say, man, I saw that game. I saw it. What a cool thing to see when your team wins the big game in dramatic fashion. I'll give you another example since it's Thanksgiving. A couple years ago, Cricket and Hunter invited Brooke and me and uh, Emma and Noel. Went, we went to a Cowboys game. Thanksgiving Day, we played the Redskins. Hate the Redskins if you're a Cowboys fan. Thanksgiving Day, so excited. And contrary to recent experience, the Cowboys occasionally win. And they won this game. And it was fun and it was exciting and you sit there and you see the big screen and you see the guys on the field and you say, this is a fun thing. What a a great memory of something that I saw. I'll give you a couple other examples. I'll put a picture of my kids up. They love it when I do this. This is their favorite. I put this picture up because I decided against putting up pictures of their births. I thought, nah, Brooke won't like that. The kids won't like that. So I'll just put a picture of them out there in front of the ballpark. But What a neat thing to see your kids born. I mean, to be there when your kids are born or your grandkids are born and just to see that, what an amazing, amazing thing. A memory you never forget and you say, I'm so glad I got to see that. We live in Odessa. I know that our landscape is sparse, but every now and then we have a really nice sunrise or a really nice sunset. And I know that you look around and you say, "Eh, man, it's kind of rough out here. But every now and then, if you just look up, you say, what an amazing thing to see. What a beautiful thing God has put, put up in the sky. Listen, John 9, he never saw any of it. None of it. Never saw the sunset over the hills of Jerusalem. Never saw the temple or the local synagogue where his family would have worshipped when he was a child. Never saw his parents' face. And then one day Jesus walks by. And because Jesus' disciples are a little bit confused and they throw out some sort of dopey theological question, and Jesus is trying to set them straight and prove a point, we read this. He spit on the ground... And he made mud with the saliva. And he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. The man who had seen nothing in his entire life came back seeing everything for the very first time. Jesus walks into his life, and suddenly he can see. That's how it works, right? Jesus walks into your life, and all your problems go away. Jesus walks into your life, and all those things you ever wanted and wished for and longed for, they just magically happen, right? Isn't that how, that's how it worked for you, right? No. It's not how it works. This man hasn't even probably gotten over the the wonder of seeing the temple or seeing Jerusalem or seeing his parents. For the very first time, and all of a sudden he sees his parents refuse to stick up for him. 
I mean, they, they kind of just throw their son under the bus because they're scared. They're afraid of the Jews. And they have the opportunity to say, the parents, they can, they can intervene in the middle of this and say, look, 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 everybody calm down. Let's think about this for a minute. And instead they say, why don't you ask him? He's a big boy. We don't want anything to do with it. We don't want you mad at us. We don't want to face any negative consequences in our life. So this man who has never seen anything now watches his parents distance themselves from him. And this man who has possibly as a young child been part of worship in a synagogue, sees his synagogue and the leaders for the very first time, and then he watches them kick him out of the synagogue because he won't throw Jesus under the bus. I'm sure it was great to see the temple, and I'm sure it was great to see his parents, and I'm sure it was great to see all the things that he saw for the very first time, but those two things were tough to see. Your parents hold you at arm's length and your religious leaders kick you out. Jesus gives sight to the blind, but it does not eliminate trials and tribulations in this life. Here's what Jesus does when you meet Jesus. It doesn't solve all your problems, but when you really meet Jesus, it solves your biggest problem. And sometimes you and I get confused about what our biggest problem is. When you meet Jesus, your biggest problem gets solved. Your biggest problem is sin. Your biggest problem is the fact that because you're a sinner, you are blind, you're spiritually dead, you're separated from God. You don't see the things that you ought to be able to see. You're like the Pharisees in this story. It's right in front of them and they don't see it. You know people like this, right? Maybe you had Thanksgiving with some of them this week. Like you talk about the Bible, you talk about the things of Jesus, you talk about biblical, spiritual things, and it's like you're just talking to a wall. They don't see it. But when you meet Jesus, all of that changes. Eyes that couldn't see can see. And a heart that wouldn't beat, beats. Look what Paul says as he describes this to the Corinthians. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers Why did he blind their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God? They don't see it. Paul says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is a remarkable thought. Paul says, in the beginning, it was the sovereign voice of God that cried out and created light in the midst of darkness. And it's the same sovereign, powerful voice of God that when a sinner hears the good news of Jesus, will call out, will cry out into their life. Their eyes are blind. They're following the God of this world. They don't understand it and they don't see it. And the power of God breaks through in their life and they meet Jesus and all of a sudden they see it. When you meet Jesus, your biggest problem is solved. You see it. And it's right there and it's a beautiful thing. But that does not mean all of the trials and tribulations of this life just immediately vanish into thin air. These people 
We're slaves, now they're free. We're blind, now we see. We're dead, now we're alive. All of that's great news. But this guy immediately gets thrown into the fire. I mean, the moment after he meets Jesus and he can see, immediately there's trials and there's testing for this guy. I think about this story and stories like it when we baptize people in our church. A baptism is an exciting thing. As a pastor, you don't want to make it a not exciting thing. Sometimes I just want to say to the people who we're baptizing, you know your life is not about to get better, right? You know it's all about to get harder, right? It's not going to get easier from here on out. It's going to be harder. You were part of the kingdom of darkness. Now you've been transferred to the kingdom of the sun. Do you think that the devil is just going to lay down and take that? Do you not? There's going to be testing and trials and tribulation. There's going to be hardship. It's not going to get easier. This guy learned it right out of the gate. His parents throw him under the bus. His religious leaders kick him out of the synagogue. Jesus gives sight to the blind, but it does not eliminate trials and tribulations in this life. One last idea I want you to see is this. Jesus gives sight to the blind so that God receives the glory. That's the aim in all of it, the glory of God. And when I read through this story, I read a couple of places where people are talking about the glory of God. And they're talking about it in very, very different ways. And I just want you to see those two places in John 9. The first is the Pharisees. Look at John 9:24. It says for the second time they called the man who had been born blind. This is the Pharisees, the Jews. They called him in for the second time and they said, "Give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. Give glory to God." It's a direct quote from the book of Joshua. Joshua and the people were fighting for the promised land and things went really well at Jericho, but they didn't go so well at Ai. They started trying to figure out what has happened here and they start to narrow down the problem to a man named Achan. Joshua stands before Achan and he says this in Joshua 7. Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Joshua knew at this point that he was a sinner, Achan, that he had intentionally and unrepentantly transgressed the command of the Lord. And he calls him in and he says, Achan, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel. These men put themselves in Joshua's place. They bring the blind man in for the second time and they think they're reliving the whole episode. And they say, give glory to God. We know that Jesus is a sinner. We know it. He's broken the Sabbath. He healed on the Sabbath. He made mud on the Sabbath. We know it. We have made up our mind that Jesus is a sinner. Give glory to God. Think about what they're saying. Give glory to God by confessing your sin and by accusing Jesus of sin. It's the light of the world right in front of them. They don't see it. The other person who talks about the glory of God in this passage is Jesus. It's back in verse 3. He doesn't use the word glory, but this is the idea. 
Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. When God puts his works on display, that's his glory. It's very, very similar to something that Jesus says just a couple of pages over. If you look at John 11, verse 4, there's a story about a guy named Lazarus. And Jesus says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus looks at these situations and he doesn't tie them to particular sins. He doesn't see it as the end game. He says there's a bigger agenda here. And that larger agenda is the glory of God. And you don't need to untie every theological, philosophical knot in what's happening here. You just need to know who God is. And you need to know who you are. And you need to be a person of faith. Trust him. Seek his glory because that's what he's up to in this world. You got two people talking about the glory of God. You got the Pharisees wanting to accuse Jesus of sin, cloaking it in a conversation about the glory of God. And you've got Jesus himself looking at a terrible situation saying, God is going to display his power and his glory through this. I just dial it all the way back to where we started. John 20. John wrote this story. He put it in this gospel so that you would come away seeing the truth about Jesus. He wants you to see it. And the man in this story, he doesn't see it all at once, but he's seeing it. And he's growing in knowledge of who Jesus is. Look in the text, John 9, verse 11. Who did this? The man, Jesus. Look down at verse 17. What do you say about him? Now we're moving the ball down the field. He's a prophet. Not just a man. He's a prophet. Look at verse 33. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. We've gone from he's a man... He's a prophet. Now we know that he's sent by God. If we just jump ahead to the text we're going to look at next week, verse 38, he said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. He sees it. John wrote this story so that you would see it. It's not a story about how you get all your problems solved It's not a story clearly about how everything just can go easy for you in life. It's a story about what God has done in sending the light of the world into this dark world. It's about the voice of God crying out into our dark hearts so that those of us who don't see can see. John wants you to see it. He wants you to have eyes to see. He wants you to believe. And so this morning, to that end, I just want to pray for myself and I want to pray for you that we would see the truth about Jesus. Let's pray.